Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. I want to extend a special welcome to those who are single, to those who are married, divorced, gay, filthy, rich, and dirt poor. I want to welcome you who have crying newborns, those who are skinny as a rail or could afford to lose a few pounds. I welcome you if you can sing like Andrea Borcelli or like Bob Dylan. You're welcome here today if you're just browsing, you just woke up, or you just got out of jail. We don't care if you're more Catholic than the Pope, or you haven't been to church since your nephew's baptism. I want to extend a special welcome to those over 60, but haven't grown up yet. To teenagers who are growing up too fast. Yeah, to soccer moms, NASCAR dads, starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters, hipsters. We want to welcome those who are in recovery or still addicted. And for those of you having problems or down in the dumps, or if you don't even like organized religion, you're welcome. You're welcome today if you blew all your money on the slots last night. And we offer a special welcome to those who think that the earth is flat work too hard, don't work, can't spell, or because grandma's in town and has forced you to go to church. We welcome those who are inked or pierced or both. We welcome those who could use a prayer right now, had religion shoved down your throat as a kid, or got lost in traffic and you ended up here by mistake. We are welcome. So we welcome the tourists, we welcome the seekers, the doubters, the bleeding hearts, and most of all, I welcome you this morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for a place to meet and for friends and family here around us. And this morning I ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and illuminate our understanding of scripture. Speak to us, I pray. Amen. A little staff announcement today. Effective tomorrow, which is March 9th, um, Pastor Jordan McClellan will embark on a five-week parental leave. He's taking advantage of our government. And uh, so he's over there, I think, somewhere, yeah. So we're thankful. It's funny, eh? He comes up to me, fear and trembling. Do you think I can? Yes, you can do it. Family first. So we're thankful for Jordan, and uh, we're excited for him to be able to spend some intentional time with Nicole and Zara and Jovi. And uh, they're going to be able to uh, uh, travel and visit family and friends. And uh, the odd time, they'll show up here on a Sunday and I expressed to all of our staff, and I expressed to you as our community, if you see Jordan and Nicole here on a Sunday before Easter, he's not working. Remember that. Don't ask him about work. He's not working. Uh, Pastor Jordan Machalski will be stepping in for Pastor Jordan McClellan during this time, and it will be happy to assist you for anything. So I have to say this. Um, it was brought to my attention last week that I was duped in an advertising experience regarding the Lego image uh, I used last week. Um, so it was actually connect, uh, created as an internet ex uh, experiment. And I actually have a link to the whole story if you want more info. So I have to apologize to Lego as they won't like the implication between that image and, and what I talked about yesterday or last Sunday. Now, it's, it's funny because this is what happens when you are doing your slides late at night and you type into Google search. Um, uh, what did I use? I use, I can't remember what, what I used to, to, to find it because the person who, who brought it to my attention again said, like, to find that slide was next to impossible. I don't even know how you found it because they tried to sweep it out of the internet. But anyway, it's there. And uh, so the Lego slide doesn't apply, but the clothing, apparel, the American apparel slide does. Anyway, just wanted to point that out. So with that said, last week we talked about sex gone wrong. And our focus was on porn and not how it only affects Generation Z, but everyone in this room. And from Matthew to Revelation, we hear this term called sexual immorality. We read it in our scriptures. And Jesus used it, as did Paul, Luke, Jude, and John. And last week, we learned that sexual immorality comes from that root word, porneia. And it refers to all sex outside the bonds of marriage. All sex outside the bonds of marriage is prohibited by God. And when it's used in scripture, it's always used in the context of relationships. And that any type of sex 
outside the relationship of marriage is not God's ideal. As a matter of fact, it's called sin. Now, if you're walking into Seoul and you just jumped into where we're at, you need to go back and listen to the last two podcasts because the framework is, and the foundation has already been developed. But today, in today's culture, even within the church, many believe that oral sex, oral sex, anal sex, masturbation, heavy petting are not part of sexual immorality, but they are. So the church has historically taught, look at wait until marriage before engaging in any form of sexuality. So in week one, we learned that God invented sex, that it was a sacred gift. It was a natural part of God's design for us. Intended for pleasure, reserved for marriage. We weren't designed for a temporary fleeting passion, but for wholeness that comes from a one flesh union for life. And that sex was established at creation for the propagation of the human race and the unity of the original couple. But it was created to point beyond the created order to this cosmic redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ. So marriage, marriage's true end is picturing the love between Christ and the church. And we read about that in Ephesians 5. His return is pictured as a wedding feast. We see that in Revelation 19. So a biblical worldview treats sex as intrinsically good and it expresses the intimate spiritual and emotional unity of marriage but like most gifts sex can either be celebrated or can be abused and we see that marriage as God has given to us is the most sacred relationship that you can enter in the scripture the word love has four words well in English the four Greek words for love but in English we really only have the one in the scriptures, we have agape, you have eros, you have phileo, and storge. A sacrificial love, romantic love, friendship love, or empathy, or familial love. Do you realize that marriage is the only one thing that pulls these four together? The Bible gives the sacredness of marriage as Christ is to the church. And in that sacredness, the beauty of the consummate relationship between a man and a woman as it's shown in the singular commitment of the marital vow, vow, we say, I do, I will. So when we say, I do to one, you say, I don't to all the others. When you say, I will to one, you say, I won't to all the others. It's that commitment, it's that vow. It's that promise that is so dear on the day of our weddings. But I have to say this, the struggle for sexual purity isn't just for singles. Although there are many different types of single people, it's not just teens and young adults. Some people have never married. Some people are widowed, separated, divorced. Some people have turned down the opportunity for marriage. Others have never had, uh, had such opportunities. There are single people who have had or are currently involved in sexual relationships outside of marriage. And there are those who are still virgins. There are singles who, long above all else, they long for marriage. And there are also singles who abhor the idea. Some singles see their singleness as a special gift from God, and others actually see it as a cruel curse. Every unmarried person has a unique history and individual needs. But what we all have in common is a sexuality that is integral to the, our very nature. And this is how God has made us. Now, married and single people have a lot more in common than they realize. And I think that we actually do ourselves a great disservice when we carp, uh, uh, compartmentalize sexual conversations to simply, well, it's single and married. Many married people, both men and women, struggle with sexual frustrations and temptations. I've met with those who think that their struggle to stay pure would end with a wedding ceremony if I just get married. Wrong. Sexual purity is a battle throughout all of adulthood, and it simply takes a different form in our marriage. Your married friends are free to have sex with their spouse. But that doesn't mean that they're not struggling with porn or unmet desires or images from the past or extramarital flirtations and conflict of how often do you have sex in your marriage? Why is it important for you to know this as a single person? 
I'll say this because it helps us and it helps you to understand that your sexuality is not about an on-off switch called marriage. It means understanding that being an adult sexual woman or man is part of God's design for you as one who bears the image of Christ. I don't fully understand it, but it's a mystery and it's still a reality. Did you know that your sexuality has nothing to do whether or not you are having sex? And as ridiculous as that sounds, some grow up thinking that, you know, they will magically become sexual when they get married. Well, before marriage, their sexuality could be lying dormant. Well, that's not a chance. Well, there is, but it's very few and far between. We're all sexual beings. We're all created in the image of God. Your sexuality is not just this little compartment. It's integrated to all aspects of our being, our intellectual, our emotional, our relational, our spiritual. It's the core part of who God created us to be. And I deeply believe that the biblical teaching to reserve sexual intimacy for marriage is still relevant today. The fullness of the sexual expression is to be, uh, was created to be expressed within that covenant of marriage. No amount of modern science or situational ethics can erase the fact that your sexuality is more, a, is more than just about your body. Genesis chapter 2, it says the two will become one flesh. Jesus will later go on and say, let no man separate this. He's saying those two people become one. Two souls coming together, being knitted together as one. The Hebrew word for this is called dod, D-O-D. And it means the mingling of two souls. It's, it, it's not two bodies that have come together, but it's two souls that have become together and they've touched one another in a significant way that shapes and that orientates them in, in specific ways. And so sexual intercourse, we need to understand, is a powerful emotional and spiritual bonding that will always have implications because there's no such thing as casual sex. God commands us to save sexual intimacy for marriage. Our sexuality is something that is always there, even when the sex isn't a part of our life. Because we tend to only talk about the physical act of sex. And we ignore the fact that our sexuality, that it ultimately drives us into relationships. It expresses our longing to be known and heard and understood and protected. Our longing to be vulnerable soul to soul with another person ultimately are longing to be known by God and so sexuality is about intimacy sexuality is about relationship and as a single purpose as person your sexuality actually serves a purpose see we confuse intimacy with sex in our culture in our world the two ideas they've actually become intertwined in fact sexual intimacy is just one aspect of intimacy I can have intimate relationships with men and women, but I'm not having sex with them. And a core aspect of our sexuality is the, there's this yearning for us to be known and to share intimacy with another person. That's expressed in its fullness in marriage. It should be expressed in its fullness in marriage. And yet our sexuality deeply impacts how I relate to others outside of the bedroom. You're longing to nurture, you're longing to connect, you're longing to share, you're longing to trust another person. Holy are aspects of God's image expressed in your sexuality. Ephesians 5, 31 to 32 alludes to the fact that sex within marriage is a holy metaphor that, that points to the spiritual mystery of God's covenant love for us. Throughout Scripture, sex is used to express aspects of God's covenant and the degree of intimacy that he has with his people. You know, if you're looking for even a, a, another story within the Scripture to help us think about the goodness of sex, we, we find nothing better than the Songs of Solomon in the Old Testament. When you read about the delight of the lovers, and I did a whole series on sacred marriage, and uh, the lovers, they, they're, they're enthusiastic. It, the, as you read the Song of Songs, it's sensory. It's highly sensory. There's touch, there's taste, there's smell. The, it's what they see. It's described that way. Uh, it, it, it's a physical and celebratory, and it's human, and it's sacred. It's a love story where, where sex is good and bodies are good. Desire is very explicit through all the songs of songs, especially in 5.4. My inmost being yearned for him, she says. You know, it's a fabulous book that talks about healthy sexuality. 
Now, the fact of the matter is we come back to ourselves and none of us is exempt from the effects of the fall. None of us is exempt from sin. None from broken sexuality. Either everybody in this room has either committed some sort of sexual sin or we've been victims of sexual sin. Or the permeating reality of sexual sin has crept into our consciousness. Remember Jesus talked about even if I look upon somebody. You know, and it cripples the way that we think about sex. And sexual, sexual sin is pervasive. It goes right to the heart of what it means to be human. It can't be ignored when you read the scriptures. But it's also not the end of the story. Paul's not afraid to name the reality of sin, but he's also confident in a new and deeper reality, a truer reality that, that ours is, a truer reality in, of ours in Jesus Christ. Sin, including sexual sin, is a description in 1 Corinthians of some of what you used to be. And because we've been restored, because we have a right relationship with the Father through the blood of Jesus, things become different. Because we've been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, a new reality is going to be open to all of us. Christians can name the goodness of, of sex because God is good. God frees us for faithfulness. God frees us for healthy, happy, holy, living, healthy, happy, holy marriages, blessed with the gift of good sex. And God frees us to live the good life in healthy, happy, holy singleness and chastity. And more on that next week. So how do we handle our sexuality? You like that? I kind of like that. Staying, staying on point. I got to stay on point here. I threw myself off this morning by not putting this on. So Paul writes to the Thessalonian church and he tells them to avoid sexual immorality. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. And this is the starting, startling because with the many dangers in Scripture, we don't get such a command as Paul has already been writing here. In James 4, we're told to resist the devil and he will flee from us. In Ephesians 6, 12, Paul says that as believers, we wrestle against powers and principalities, which refers to demons, really. So with Satan and demons, we resist and we wrestle. But when it comes to sexual immorality, it's interesting, we're actually told to avoid and flee from it. Isn't that interesting? And this demonstrates actually how dangerous sexual immorality is. When Joseph is tempted in the Old Testament with Potiphar's wife to commit adultery, what does he do? She grabs at him. She's pulling him to bed, and he runs to escape her grasp. It's the same for us. It's something that we have to flee at all costs. So sexual immorality is dangerous because when we commit sexual immorality, Scripture says we sin against our own bodies. This sin affects our mind, affects our body, affects our spirit, our emotions. It can have actually drastic effects. It opens a door for emotional baggage. Sexual immorality destroys homes. It can destroy careers and friendships. It even can destroy one's faith. You know, one can ask, well, if it's so dangerous, you know, sex is so dangerous. Why did God create it? When God created everything, which was including sex, what did he call it? He called it good. However, the world comes to this place where it's stained by sin and sex gained the potential of being destructive. In the confines of a marriage relationship, which is actually fulfilling God's original plan, Sex is good and powerful. It creates intimacy. It creates pleasure between the couple. It has the ability to lead to procreation. However, outside of that, it is destructive. In fact, Romans 1 says that one of the primary results of de denying God is a distorted sexuality. And this is where we're, where we're experiencing in today's culture. And this is why it's such a battle. See, the world denies God without question. And therefore, what we do, we see that sexuality is rampant. Sexual immorality is rampant. But it's also true for the early church at that time as well. In fact, Paul calls the church in Thessalonica to learn how to control their bodies. In other words, it implies that many didn't know how to control the desires that they had. So Thessalonica, Ephesus, and Corinth were all part of the Greco-Roman Empire, the culture where sex was glorified. 
Marriage was not the primary avenue for gratifying sexual desires during that time. It was a social advancement. It was so that I could provide an heir for my family. And so by unifying two families, one can climb the social ladder. If by chance you were able to get a beautiful daughter, it was like a meal ticket for a poor family. To fulfill their sexual desires, it was quite normal and acceptable for a man to have mistresses and concubines. And so the gratification of sexual desires was not the focus of the marriage in that culture. And in that culture, when people got married, men were usually around 30, women were around 16 to 18. And so the pervasive sexual nature of the culture now starts coming into the church. And therefore, believers now, Paul says, you got to learn, learn how to control your bodies. And so in 1 Corinthians 6, some are having sex with prostitutes. Again, what does Paul say to them? Do you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take a member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No. So you see the spiritual connection between our human bodies and our, our relationship with Jesus. And Paul's pointing it out very clearly. Clearly, or do you not know that he who is joined to the prostitute becomes one body with her? So sex, interesting, was a problem within the early church, but it, was, it is also a problem for the church today. Somebody can say, well, you Christians, why are you so obsessed with sex? And I think the question itself can be a little perplexing for us. Like, what do you mean obsessed with sex? You know, for many people, it's interesting because what Christianity teaches about sex is frankly strange. Another question being asked is, why does God care with who I sleep with? And so Christians are increasingly seen as being outdated, restrictive, judgmental, when it comes to sex before marriage, when it comes to uh, cohabitation, when it comes to homosexuality, when it comes to gender identity or transgender issues. In fact, for many people, the issue of sexuality is one of the biggest barriers for them considering Christianity. Before I go there, and I will in two weeks' time, let's talk about Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 22-33, if we believe that sex is reserved for marriage from a historical Christian perspective, then let's take a look at what Paul says about marriage. Wives, this is today the International Women's Day, right? I'm thinking, holy cow, am I going to get lynched after this morning just by bringing up this verse. Now remember, you all love Jesus, right? He was a pacifist, right, Mennonites? <sighs> Wives, submit to your husbands. <laughs> As to the Lord. <laughs> For as the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle in any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands, you ought to love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Again, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united with his wife, the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So there are two major problems we face when we try to interpret this passage. The first is history. This passage has been used by men to abuse women. It's been misinterpreted. It has been misapplied to subjugate women in an inappropriate exercise of power that has been to the best interest of the man instead of the woman. Simply put, men have selfishly demanded Submission based on this passage without regard for the woman and completely ignoring the commands addressed at themselves. The second problem we is, is that when we look at that word headship, we equate that word headship with inequality. 
We interpret the phrase, the husband is the head of the wife, to somehow mean that the husband is more important, the husband is more special, and, and somehow more valuable because he's the head. And this, this is the problem we have with the hi- hierarchical terminology. There is no notion of inequality here in this text. In fact, Paul is addressing women directly as free moral beings. And this is demonstrated uh, by what we read here. And this is actually radically countercultural for the day. His culture would have expected him to address only the men and tell them how to demand submission from their wives. Paul doesn't do this, which is truly revolutionary here. Let me extend the analogy just a little bit and say that if the husband is the head, the wife is the heart. So you can be brain dead and still technically alive, if you know what I'm saying. The point that Paul is making is that both are essential. Expectations are laid out for both partners. The key verse reminds us, what? That the two become one. So regardless of how we interpret the rest, let's be clear that we're not talking about inequality. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That word submit means a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, carrying a burden. How many wives already feel like you're carrying a burden? And in this original context, that is voluntarily giving in. Voluntarily cooperating. So Paul's instruction then is that wives should voluntarily give in and cooperate. And the reason that he gives uh, is problematic for us because we have this hierarchy built in our head. He says wives should submit because the husband is the head of the wife. But he adds, just like Christ is the head of the church. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say you need to obey. He actually does earlier to children and slaves. Children obey your parents. Slaves obey your masters. But here in the husband and wife relationship and context, he doesn't use that. That word obey is stronger. This isn't the same idea that Paul is telling us here in 5.22. The context is, is much more um, uh, uh, voluntary. And this also, by the way, does not mean that women should submit to men in general. The context is clearly about wives and husbands. It's for the relationship. A man can't walk up to another woman and say, make me a sandwich. All right? Because men are not the head of women in general. Men are head of their wives, according to Scripture, and that's it. Now, I'm not saying that men and women are unequal, because remember, they are both image bearers of God. Male and female are both created in the image and likeness of God. They, however, are different. Have you looked in the mirror? Take a look at your hands right now. I know you got coronavirus and stuff. Don't worry about it. Oh, by the way, just for the next little while, while the scare is on, you know, maybe elbow bump, fist bump, you know, um, spock it if you have to. You know, if you want to do the foot dangle, you know, to, you know. But you may want to just keep your distance. We do have a little Perel at the front. Just keep that in mind. Be, be sensitive to people. But um, that's a total off the brain right there. I don't know. A squirrel. Take a look at your hands. Now, As you're looking at your hands, at first they appear to be the same, do they not? Now what do you have in front of you? You have one hand that is left, you have one hand that is right. Chances are you still have all your appendages, right? Is one good, one bad? Do you discipline one and not the other? Of course, bad hand, bad hand, right? Left, right, they're similar, right? They're very similar, but they're very different, right? They're different. Now, wives, listen, if you're uncomfortable with Paul's instructions to you, I just need you to relax, all right? Because what he actually calls the husbands to is worse. It's only after the fall, after sin comes into the world, that this idea of headship comes into play. If you go back to the fall, you go back to Genesis chapter 3.16, remember, God is pronouncing judgment. He says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. You can't erase that. So Paul radically calls husbands 
to work for a pre-fall-like quality in our marriages. Where there's unity, equality, and harmony are the things that characterize our relationships. So husbands, you are to love your wives even to the point of sacrificing everything, including your lives. Rest on that for a moment. Headship is not chauvinism or sexism. It is unparalleled humility where the man empties himself for his wife. Think about that for a moment. And then let me ask the wives, would you have a problem with the command to submit if your husband was fully obeying his command to love you to the point of even sacrificing his very life? And gentlemen, wouldn't you rather just have submit on your end? <laughs> so equality is not the focus of the passage. Function is. And this passage in no way dis, di, diminishes the equality of women as subservient or less than men. The focus is basically on God-given roles and functions. And the husband or wife are called to be in obedience to God. Nowhere is the wife instructed to enforce these commitments on the husband or the husband on the wife. We need to focus our own obedience and our own uh, responsibility. And so God has created us male and female in such uniquely different ways, and he has given us very different roles. In Paul's day, women had no rights. They were you know, there to look after their husband's household and children. They were considered basic property. Her legal position basically amounted to enslavement. They couldn't vote. They couldn't own land. They couldn't hold political office. They were basically uneducated for the most part. It was common practice to have more than one wife if the first one couldn't produce an offspring to carry on the family lineage. Like it or not, adultery was norm for the man. That was the culture. So in a culture where women are actually being looked down upon and they experience Christ and they become believers, now you have a problem within the relationship. What are people to do? And many wives still despised their husbands. Why? Because wives felt that the husbands maybe didn't love them, rather that they were just being used. We still have that carrying over today in many relationships. So even when um, uh, the husbands became Christians, those feelings didn't go away immediately. In verse 21, Paul begins by telling believers to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. Jesus is our model. He came as a servant. He submitted his whole life to those he served. And so notice right off the start, the, the notion of submission bears no sense of inferiority. There can be a sense of, you know, how can there be a sense of inferiority if Jesus becomes our model? No one would ever suggest that Jesus was inferior to those who he came to serve. Paul never uh, instructs husbands to make their wives submit. Now, according to verse 21, submission in the sense of voluntarily yielding your love is there. And it's a mutual submission that he's talking about. Not the dominance of one or another. Even the working out of various social roles may be different. This voluntarily yielding to others is a characteristic of the Christian community. In other words, it actually made a difference in the culture. It's also urged elsewhere within the New Testament. And Peter even urges younger men to submit to elders and everyone to submit to one another. Isn't that interesting? So what's marriage? So historically, according to the scriptures, marriage is a covenant between one man, one woman who have become one flesh for a lifetime. In our Premarital, we would often say that marriage is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. And that's what God had in mind when he created marriage. People who recognize the value of a commitment in marriage. And so does God. Again, Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In Malachi 2.16, God showed how much total commitment in marriage meant to him by declaring a very simple thing where he says, I hate divorce. But why is such loyalty important to God between husbands and wives? The answer is because God regards marriage as his creation, not man's. God approves of marriage. God created marriage. He entrusts it with us. We have to give account to him one day. If marriage belonged to us, then we can use it. We can abuse it. We can set aside. We can do as we please with it. But God has not given us that authority. 
The husband and wife are under the authority of Jesus and are responsible for what he has given us. The ideal marriage is a partnership. It's a relationship of mutual submission. And in a partnership, neither partner tries to dominate the other. The marriage relationship is based on what we call unconditional love. And we need to manage our marriages. The word manage is a good word because manage takes work. Every marriage takes work. Having a good marriage is work. Any relationship that is going to grow uh, uh, takes us making the intentional effort towards it. And this applies to all relationships. God is willing to help us if we're willing to seek that help. Now, in 1 Corinthians, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. And it goes back to what, you know, what did you expect when you entered into the marriage relationship? You know, did you only care what you got out of it? Because then that becomes very selfish. Loving somebody means that you're actually, you care more for that person than you actually care for yourself. To love, to honor, to cherish means you want to make that other person's life better. Is there any greater pursuit than that as a believer? And so sex then is reserved for marriage. And sex, like I said, touches the soul. And that can be very beautiful or it can be really, really dangerous. I know for many of us, intimacy can be incredibly difficult, especially in our culture, right? We don't want to show our feelings. There are a few things more vulnerable than sex. You know, when we get married, we can bring a lot of baggage. We can bring in a lot of hurt, a lot of brokenness into our marriages. And for some, sex is physically and extremely painful. For others, they're dealing with maybe two separate drives. You, you have a real strong drive, and maybe the other one has a real low drive, or it's the opposite in the relationship. Occasionally, when I've talked, about, talked on this, I'll get an email from a woman saying, I have a real strong sex drive, my husband doesn't. You know, we all, in our culture, we often snicker every time we talk about a guy wanting more sex than a woman. But in reality, that's not that's all out there. This just isn't a one-way street. There are all sorts of issues that we're trying to navigate through. There's all sorts of brokenness found in the marriage relationship as well. It's not the be-all and end-all. There's a diagnosis that I just stumbled upon, if I, if I may. It's, it's called intimacy anorexia. And it's defined as the act of withholding of emotional, spiritual, and sexual intimacy from the spouse. That means if one spouse is intentionally holding various aspects of himself or herself from the other spouse. It's as if the intimacy anorexic is married to themselves and creates an ongoing distance from their husband or wife. This too is sex gone wrong. And it, it can be manifested in a number of ways. Here are 10 ways. One characteristic is that we're busy. Busy, 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 busy. One spouse can be busy with housing projects, work volunteering, video game, sports, watching TV, reading the paper, whatever, the list can go on. Their spouse feels so alone in the marriage and they'll find something else, somebody else to give their attention to. Blame. This is where one spouse will blame the other for all their problems in the marriage. They want to be seen as good all the time. Therefore, you know, if it's not good, well, then it's the spouse's fault. Withholding love. This is where the one spouse withholds love in a way that the other spouse likes to be loved. If it's touched, the one spouse won't give it. They intentionally, they routinely don't do what they know they have to do. Withholding praise. One spouse does not praise the other in private. They may do it in public, but that's, you know, whatever. But privately, there's an intentional lack of praise, a withheld word. Of course, withholding sex. Some spouses withhold sex by not initiating it or talking about it or having no creativity about sex. Not all withhold sex from their spouses, but there are those who do and there are those who don't, but they withhold the intimacy during the sex. They withhold spirituality. One spouse can come off as very religious to the public, but in private, they withhold their spirituality from their spouse. Feelings. And this is critical. This is 
where a spouse is unwilling to share their feelings. They will avoid conversations or go blank or silent when feelings begin to show themselves in the relationship. Criticism. This is where it's ongoing and ungrounded criticism in the relationship. It's just constant. Just tears apart one another. Anger and silence. Where anger and silence is used as a control over the other spouse. And money. Again, money is used as control in a variety of ways. These are all things that permeate our relationships. Maybe as I was going through those 10 points, you were saying amen or ouch, right? Because I'm pretty sure there are people in this room who can identify with what I'm talking about. That something's not right. Goodness redeemed is our topic today. Sexuality and marriage are about self-giving. And the focus for any spouse is to be simply like Christ, aimed at accomplishing the good of the other. The Christian sexual ethic is fundamentally shaped by this reality. The husband or the wife aren't the ends in themselves, given only for their pleasure and whims. They are God's image bearers to cherish. Do you cherish the one that you have committed to? Let me ask you this. Do you have any scars? I have a scar on my hand. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I, sel I, I seldom think about it because healing took place. But maybe you have past scars in your relationships. Let me encourage you that healing can take place. Every once in a while, you think about the scars from time to time. But most of the time, you live life without thinking about the scar. See, Jesus, the master healer, can bring healing into our life. He can bring it into your marriage. He can bring it into your family. If you... It doesn't matter if you're married. It doesn't matter if you're single. It matters whether or not you give him the chance to do the work that he wants to. The love of Christ will make a way. Spouses, I speak to you. Maybe you're here today and you need to swallow your pride and confess your sins to each other. Maybe you just need to go home or go out and say, I'm sorry. And name what you're sorry for and try to do better, to work more on yourself, to build your marriage. Wouldn't it be wonderful if a distant, lifeless marriage today was transformed into a vibrant, loving marriage? I believe it can happen. And I pray that God would make it happen for every marriage here today. And lift you are in the place where you need help as a couple, I encourage you to contact me here at the office. We want to walk with you. We want to guide with you. And if you're a couple and you're married, this is what I want to say. One of the greatest things you can do for your kids is to let them know that you love their mother and father. The best thing that you can hear from your kid's mouth is get a room. And don't stop there to express your love before family members or co-workers. Let the world know that this woman or this man is the person that God gave you. That they're your queen, that they're your king. And in my case, the mother of my children and in the love of my life. How did Jesus get the church to submit to him? Did he order us to? Did he ever use force? Did he ever use guilt? No, he simply just humbled himself. He gave himself up for her. Paul takes this idea of the husband and the wife being one flesh and asks, how do you treat your own body? You know, don't you nourish it? Don't you care for it? Well, that's how you should treat each other if the two of you in a marriage are one. It's no different from loving yourself. And again, he says there's this mystery reflected in the marriage bond that sums up all that he's been saying about the unity of the church. And so just as a man and a woman become one flesh, so too the church and Christ are united into a single entity and so that the two can't be separated. There's a mystery to, to this. There's a mystery to our sexuality. We have two more weeks to go and then again asking for a friend on Sunday night. 
Asking for a friend Sunday night, we will be able to entertain the questions if you submit them ahead of time. I will also be doing a full presentation on the perspective of both homosexuality and transgenderism and everything else that goes along with that from a historic Christian perspective as well as a balanced progressive perspective. I don't feel that that's the conversation to have here on a Sunday morning. I feel it's a conversation that we have around a table. That will be reserved for Sunday night. But there's something Paul says about marriage and the church and the two becoming one that has transformed the culture. There's a historical document called the Letter of Diogenetus. Here the author is describing the Christians of the day. Here's a part of what it says. He says, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric lifestyle. While they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland. Every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else. They have children, but they don't expose their offspring. That means putting them on a hill to die, right? They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, and indeed their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone and everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicted, uh, vindicated. Sorry. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. Those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. The ancient Christian made a difference. And is it any wonder that the world found that sort of faith to be contagious? As I look at the choices, the pressures, the challenges facing all of us today in today's culture, there are some issues that seem to be attracting more attention than others. The, there are the issues that are big, bold, and they're, they're convincing. But no matter where we position ourselves, these issues fill our field of vision. They overload our senses with pointed, powerful persuasion saying, look at this is the way we have to go. More on that to come in the next few weeks. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Are there wives here today that are simply saying, I just need more help loving this girl that I'm sitting next to. How's that for an honest question? Wives, I ask very clearly, are you asking for prayer today? God would just give you some more help to love. Maybe you're already in love and you're all ooey and gooey and you just want more mush. That's fine too. Or maybe you're struggling in your relationship. Do you need prayer today? Do you have the boldness to actually raise your hand and say, will you remember me in prayer? Anybody? Husbands, what about you? Your command was to sacrifice as Christ did for the church, gave up his life. Are you fulfilling your role in your marriage? Or do you need a little help?
Anybody want to raise their hand and say, Jerry, you just remember me in prayer? You can put it down. Thank you. Yeah. Father, I thank you for your word that it speaks to us very directly about the practical matters of life. And Father, I thank you that as your word said, it's not good for man to be alone, so you created a helpmate for them. So I pray for the marriages in this room to be enduring and endearing. I pray that there would be great satisfaction of being united as one. And Father, I pray that as these marriages, maybe they've hit hard times, that they would be able to pull through, that they would be able to lean on you in the times of hardship, and that they would not turn against one another, but rather that they would turn towards each other. Father, I pray today for spouses to forgive and learn to be forgiven. I pray that you would help them to love and learn to love. Help them to respect and to earn that respect. And Father, for those words that may have been hurtful, provide healing. For those attitudes that have been cutting, provide closure. And may you heal today those that need a touch from you. Father, my prayer is that husbands would rise up to your challenge from your word, that they'd be able to love their wives in such a way that they would see Jesus their wives would see Jesus in their husbands. And I pray for strong families here at Seoul that they would be hospitable and open and model love and caring and concern. And we pray that your word would be taught and talked about and shared in the homes. And Father, place a hedge of protection around these homes. Give them hope, give them peace, give them love. And Father, against every, uh, as well as every single person represented here today, Place a hedge of protection around them as well. And God, give us the grace to live with one another, is my prayer. Stand with me. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Here it is. It's a little long, but here it is. You are God's servants. You are gifted with dreams and visions. Upon you rests the grace of God like flames of fire. So love and serve the Lord with all the strength of the Holy Spirit. May the peace of Christ be with you. May the strong arms of God sustain you. May the power of the Holy Spirit strengthen you in every way. And finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace be with you. Now go and live the church. Amen. See you next week.